You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome, history friends, delegates all, to episode 3 of the Delegation Game. Last time we followed the exploits of an enraged Lloyd George, as the British Prime Minister tried to get to the bottom of an incredible proposal, that being a resolution calling for devolved independence for Ireland in the North and South. The significance of this proposal was palpable because it had the potential to prevent the outbreak of the Irish War of Independence. While the full extent of that conflict will probably be avoided, it was inevitable that on a divided island like Ireland, not everyone would be happy with such a compromise. Some of the more extreme North and South citizens did rise up 
But thanks to the overwhelming international pressure and British acceptance of the proposal as a whole, as well as another event which takes place in this episode, this miniature little civil war didn't last long. If this sounds interesting, then you should know that this episode will contain much more than merely an Irish adventure. The results are in, and the delegates voted overwhelmingly to accept the League of Nations with conditions, just as you also voted to support the proposal for devolved independence as the solution to the outbreak of the Irish War of Independence. We'll deal with the implications of both these votes within this episode. Delegates were also working overtime to bring forward some proposals of their own. During the week, in the very active chats, I was made aware of the successful passage of three individual proposals. First, we have the proposal for Germany's East Asian and Pacific colonies, which hands Germany's colonies in the Pacific largely over to the Japanese and partially to the British, in return for promises of cooperation between the three powers and Japanese contributions to German recovery in Europe. The Japanese were busy in other respects too, signing a private treaty of friendship and commerce with the Kingdom of Siam, which guaranteed low tariffs and very friendly neutrality in times of war. Our second proposal is a good deal more contentious, but the details of it seem a bit sketchy. From what my sources can gather, it seems to be an arrangement between several Western nations, but I couldn't get any more information out of the darned Yanks than that. The whispers and rumours will likely drive the Italians and Poles crazy, and perhaps the other rumour is true, that there is no so-called Western trade accord at all, and the whole thing is just a device to spook those members of the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, or IFTA, which has hit some rocky ground since its unveiling last week. The third and final proposal to make it through this week was that which incorporated Alsace-Lorraine into France as a French department, which the chairman has been told means Alsatians and Lorrainers have more independence than they would otherwise have if they were just a normal province of France. Charles Scheer, who are trusty delegate for all things Alsace-Lorraine, is said to be a tad gloomy, but also positive that he can now turn his attentions towards making this new relationship as beneficial for Alsace-Lorraine as possible. I would also like to ask you all to welcome a new delegate by the name of Walter Cameron to Paris. He just arrived off the boat and is ready to serve America wherever he can. I'm told by reliable sources that he is in his mid-50s, is a chartered accountant, so hopefully the now large American delegation can harness his expertise on financial matters to come up with a suitable economic settlement for Germany. We do have some housekeeping to get through before we actually get into this episode though, dear delegates, so if you're confused about issues, then hopefully this section will clear things up. First of all, sorry about this, where are my manners? What's going on here? If you're just joining us and you've never heard of the Delegation Game before, the Delegation Game is a role-playing podcast game where you send me an avatar that you have designed to the Paris Peace Conference, and basically everything works from there. For more information, head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game. If you have any other questions, simply ask me by emailing me at wdfpodcast at hotmail.com or asking in the Facebook group, Facebook page, etc. I am a grandfather, fountain of all knowledge, and I am ready and eager to hear what you have to say. In any case, those of you that are listening right now and have actually got a delegate in this race, you might find the following information useful. So far, it has been the case that when a delegate makes a proposal, it is then voted on by as many people as see it, And then when the votes are cast, they bring it to me and I do a dice roll. This has been how voting has worked 
since I thought of this game and since we began this a few weeks ago. A small reminder, we are using a 20-sided dice, and if you get more people than in the scheme or proposal, you're more likely to succeed. A suggestion has been to include negative voting in this formula, which I am open to, though it has its ups and downs. I do realise this could make it so that things are deadlocked, so that we'll never have enough votes for a successful roll if the negative votes cancel out the positive ones. But as I said, I'm open to ideas, such as replacing the 20-sided dice with a 15-sided one to even out the odds. I'm aware that there's a proposal actually being put forward to change how voting works in this respect, so for the moment, I'm willing to see how we all get on. Second, and in line with the whole thing about voting, there seems to be some confusion about how schemes or plots work. For the record, when designing this game, it never occurred to me that people would even make proposals out in the open, and I also didn't imagine there being so much dialogue between all the delegates, which is why I find it all so exciting right now. Back to my point though, schemes work the exact same way as proposals, except they are secret. That's literally the only difference. They are created, and people are enlisted to cooperate with the scheme in secret, the plot is proposed to mean secret, and I roll the dice, determine the results, and incorporate these developments into the latest episode script, all in secret. This enables vengeful delegates to work out sometimes rash but often ingenious schemes to get back at or undermine their rivals. However, the risk is that if the dice roll fails, there is no guarantee that your plot will not be exposed, or that your avatar will not suffer some penalty. The more people involved in the scheme, the less likely these penalties are to occur, so that the game encourages you to recruit some like-minded schemers. Proposals are very much out in the open, and thanks to the hard work of the Japanese delegate in particular, we have a much more streamlined version of chats, where everyone is free to chat as they wish, but the most important developments and documents are reserved for two individual chats, literally called documents, and also the proposal voting booth, with no fluff in between. There's also a crazy group of delegates currently developing our alternative version of the Treaty of Versailles and updating it each week as things are passed. Have I ever said before how incredible you all are? Well, in case I haven't, you're all incredible. And thanks so much for making this game such a joy to take part in. I am aware of a side effect of you all being so great though, something that I've been told by several different players. Sometimes, between the proposal crafting and the constant pinging of the different chats, This game can get a tad overwhelming, and people can fall behind. A solution to this is obvious. Take a week off every now and then, maybe every six weeks, so four times in the course of this game in other words, to let everyone recharge their batteries and cool down for a bit. As passionate and enthusiastic as we all are, there is a risk that by participating so intensely in this game and pretty much ignoring the rest of your life, we could get burnt out. But I am aware at the same time you're paying to play this game, so I don't want to shortchange you guys at all. I wouldn't bring this up, only I've been contacted by several delegates asking me if there was a way to alleviate some of the burden. I personally find it overwhelming at times, but not so bad that I desperately need a break. And as I have announced within the chats before, sometimes I basically just go AWOL, or literally switch off my phone, and take a break from everything, because you need to do that when you're trying to have a life as well as do these things. But let's just say I wouldn't say no if the opportunity to take a break from the delegation game every so often came around. Now, I don't want to throw any more housekeeping at you guys, but keep that little bit in mind about taking breaks. And I should add that we'll have more announcements to get through at the end of the episode. I didn't want to stick them all in the beginning because there's a good few of them to think about. 
And by the end of this episode, we'll have more things to think about too. So stick around to the end of the show if you want more information and to be kept up to date fully with what's going down and what's changing here at the Delegation Game. Well, with that now, guys, I think that's pretty much all that has to be said. So I hope you enjoy this episode, dearest delegate, because I personally feel that it's the most ridiculous, dramatic, and gripping one yet. Monsieur Cameron, I presume? inquired the taxi driver. Walter Cameron was awakened out of his daydream. The salty sea air and blustery winds had forced an awful lot of oxygen into his lungs, and he almost felt a bit dizzy, coming all the way from Detroit. He wasn't in Detroit anymore. Instead, he was in Brest, France's premier seaside port city, and the first of many stop-offs towards the end goal. He had the name of the hotel scrawled on the back of his hand, per his wife's suggestion. Seeing the words again reminded him of her. Walter smiled, but then he felt his glasses moving. New glasses, Walter sighed, at just the wrong time too. His eyesight was fading, so an upgrade was essential, but the last thing he needed now was to feel unsure of himself. He was about to walk into a building where 95% of the men were trained to win with words, and he hoped that he was up to the task. Woodrow Wilson hoped so too, and had asked for him personally on the recommendation of House. The president wanted someone with knowledge of financial matters, and Cameron's experience as an accountant who brought businesses together and amicably solved disputes seemed to recommend him for this difficult art of economic diplomacy. So valued had Walter been declared to be that House had personally sent for a cab for him all the way from Paris. The president's accountant would certainly not be taking the train. Walter hesitated somewhat at this news. While he was flattered, such treatment made him uncomfortable, and he would rather have sat among the common people of France and taken in the atmosphere, as he made his way to the capital of the Allied war effort. What war? Walter had once mistakenly asked House, who replied with some indignation, Mr. Cameron, I am sure you are aware of the presence of the Germans who remain in Europe? House's point was condescendingly expressed, but Walter absorbed it well enough. The Germans might have been down, but they were not out, and so long as only the armistice was holding everything together, it could resume at any time. Walter couldn't help but feel underqualified for this mission. How was he to arrive at a satisfactory solution which the Allies and Germans would accept? Everyone wanted money, but nobody wanted to pay the penalties for receiving it. This was Walter's experience of business as well, and as House had said, he knew businessmen, and that was what Europeans were at the end of the day, out for the best deal for their country. Walter realised that he had been staring at the driver for some time, so he replied to his original question. That's me, sir, Walter replied, to which the driver perked up and replied in a thick, cockney accent, You're a Yank, thank God. I thought they'd saddle me with a Frenchie for the eight-hour drive. Walter didn't know whether to be thankful or horrified. Eight hours? The driver noted the expression Walter was wearing and attempted to comfort him. Not to worry, boss. I have orders for a few stop-offs. We'll be safely there by tonight. Apparently you are to see some old trenches as well? Walter nodded. It had been House's idea to familiarise himself with what the French had been through, so that Walter would have no doubts as to where his loyalties might lie. Hop in, then his driver said. The next few hours were a blur of empty, sparsely populated countryside, 
thick roaming rain clouds, and some of the best company he had ever had. The driver's name was Tommy, although it was actually Billy, but he had changed it because the French always called him Tommy for as long as he had lived here, which was since 1914, when a shell had ripped off part of his side, and he had then fallen in love with the French nurse while convalescing. As the only Londoner within several miles of the French village where he now lived, the locals began referring to him affectionately as Tommy, and the name just stuck. People are hard on the frogs, Tommy said, almost as a warning. But they ain't bad folk. I reckon they're just hurting, is all. Hurting was right. If the landscape of France was anything to go by, French citizens had suffered unimaginable pain. By the time he visited a portion of a trench and paid his respects to a small French burial ground, Walter Cameron was convinced of the need to punish the Jerrys for what they had done. Telling Tommy of his anger, the driver replied, Hey, don't be too hard on Jerry, he ain't done nothing to you. When Walter pointed out what the Germans had done, his driver erupted into fits of laughter. Sorry, mate, Tommy said. I was talking about my mate, Jerry. We had to pick him up on the way. Walter was supremely confused. I'll be sharing my car? he asked, in a tone that he instantly regretted. Sorry, boss, Tommy replied. It's just for a short part of the trip, and gotta save on fuel, you know? Riding in a car with Tommy and Jerry, Walter mused. Would they be picking up a man called Frog on the way to complete the set? Stopping off in a train station in the outskirts of the Parisian suburbs, Jerry climbed into the car. All right, Jerry, this is Mr. Cameron. He's the boss, so no funny business, Tommy said. The man known as Jerry scrunched up his face and began to whisper, What are you? before looking back at Walter and smiling broadly. The two men clearly knew each other well, Walter deduced, but something didn't feel right now. He noticed a ring then on Tommy's hand. This was far too fancy a ring for an average cab driver or a French villager to afford. Something was up, so Walter asked Tommy a question. Tommy, Walter began, whereabouts in London are you from? Well, Tommy inhaled deeply, as if preparing an answer. My dad's side hail from Cheapside, but me mum's... For God's sake, man, Jerry interrupted. Put the poor yank out of his misery, would you? Walter started to feel a sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach. Had these men been sent by the Germans to rob him of his belongings? Well, you're no fun at all, Alistair, Tommy exclaimed, in a voice that suddenly didn't sound very cockney at all. Alistair? Walter said in a small voice. I thought your name was Jerry. Oh, my dear boy, Alistair said. I'm afraid you've been the victim of a rather poor prank on Arthur's part. So... So you're not a cockney who fell in love with a French peasant girl in 1914? Walter asked. Is that what he told you? Alistair boomed. Poor old Arthur has been bound to his ball and chain for years now. How long did you say it had been, Artie? Seventeen years, Arthur grunted from the driver's seat. But why did you lie? Walter gasped. Are we even going to the Hotel Twomley? Yes, yes, of course, Mr. Cameron, we're well on our way... I just needed to do something to liven the mood for the eight-hour trip. You're a nice fellow, though. I hope I didn't spook you. No, not at all, Walter lied, exhaling gently and relaxing somewhat. What made you think of it, Arthur, you strange fool? Alistair asked, 
Sometimes I just like to role-play, Arthur replied. It keeps my brain active. I don't understand, Walter piped up. If you two are British delegates, what on earth are you doing out here? How do you have the spare time? Oh, do relax, my dear boy, Alistair said. The boss said we deserved a few days off after all the good work we've done. And when House let it be known that he was looking for a driver, I volunteered so I could catch a glimpse of France. Is going on leave a regular thing here? Walter asked. Are you kidding? Arthur replied. We've been stuck in that lousy hotel while our friends live it up in the Hotel Majestic. I'm telling you, Mr. Cameron, someday someone will get killed in that hotel and they'll wonder how anyone ever thought it was a good idea to pack in a load of delegates together with such strong drink. So you needed a break from the place? Walter asked. Oh yes, Alistair confirmed, before adding, By the way, my full name is Sir Alistair Tancred, MP, former soldier and servant of His Majesty, and the man you've been calling Tommy is Arthur Fitzwilliam, a stuffy old goat if there ever was one. It takes one to know one, Fitzwilliam replied, before turning back to face the two men in the back seat. We're just about there now, gentlemen. Mind the poles. No, I mean, sorry, mind the potholes. Walter made a confused face before asking, Are you two staying at the hotel for much longer? Yes, sir, Fitzwilliam replied. There's still plenty to do, and it is really high time we were getting back to work. The car pulled smoothly into one of the few remaining parking spaces. It is a beautiful vehicle, Walter marvelled. It'd want to be, sir. This is Mr Lloyd George's car, Fitzwilliam exclaimed, with no effort at all to mask his pride. I've been riding across France in the Prime Minister of Great Britain's car, Walter gasped. Didn't he miss it? Let's just say what the boss doesn't know won't hurt us. Maybe it'll teach him a lesson for sticking us in such a dump. A dump, Walter said, gesturing to the gold-plated doors of the Hotel Twomley. You call that place a dump? Wait till you see what the inside is like, Mr. Cameron, Sir Alistair grinned. It's the company that really brings the place down, if you catch my drift. The three men exited the car, while Fitzwilliam and Tancred gestured to Walter. Enjoy yourself, Mr. Cameron, yelled one of them, but Walter wasn't sure which one, because he was too busy gazing at the building's exterior. Eventually, Walter Cameron walked inside, straight up to the reception desk. The interior was nice enough, if a little bit over the top. The staff looked exceptionally bored, and with the arrival of evening, the bar seemed unusually full and loud for such a respectful establishment. Or maybe it was simply trying to look like a respectful establishment. Out of the corner of his eye, seated in an alcove, some distance from the bar, were a group of five men smoking and drinking together. Walter recognised one of them as Paderewski the pianist who had played in Detroit's City Hall some years before, so he deduced that this must be the Polish delegation. They were all speaking anxiously about something, and one Pole, the grizzled-looking man with the eye patch, seemed especially upset, as a wiry-looking Pole clad in a business suit and holding a pen seemed to be trying to calm him down. Walter began to wish that he had kept up with those Polish language classes as his father had recommended. Brave fools, the Poles! Walter Sr. had always said, but make a pole a friend, and you have a friend for life. Perhaps it was time to make some friends. Just as he was considering walking over to them, everything hit the fan. Sir Robert, perhaps we should reconsider, Joseph Doherty mused. 
This does have the potential to create further division and suspicion among the Intermarium Free Trade Group, and it could potentially halt all efforts to... The two Canadians stopped, aware that they had just walked right beside all five members of the Polish delegation, who happened to be seated in a circular table in an alcove a few feet from the bar. Both Canadians had been distracted by the arrival of a new figure, a balding, bespeckled, older man who they judged to be American. It was a Canadian policy to introduce themselves to each new American they saw, and the hotel seemed to be filling up with them. While taking on that mission, Doherty had been quite unaware of the Poles nearby him. They had almost certainly heard him mention the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, and he could already feel a guilty look spread across his face, so they could probably piece together the rest. Rumours were rampant that a secret accord to combat the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement had been signed by several powers, and the Poles were said to be particularly suspicious and, invariably, outraged. The tense standoff between the two Canadians and the five Poles lasted for barely 60 seconds, when the one-eyed Pole, Doherty knew to be Frederick Bronsky, stood up from the table and began shouting loudly at him. Bronsky was a ferocious man, like a bear, a one-eyed bear, constrained only by the civilization which had taken him in. Doherty suddenly felt very small, but it was clear amidst the drunken taunts and angry shouts that Bronsky did not intend to kill him with his bare hands. He instead seemed determined to shoot him. The mad Pole was brandishing a revolver and waving it in Doherty's direction. Ever since the first few days, Doherty had taken to carrying a state-of-the-art repeating pistol, the Colt 1911. If he could reach into his pocket, he could shoot the foolish Pole dead before anyone knew what was happening. But could he do it? Could he really shoot this drunken fool? He was only angry at him due to some misunderstanding. Matters were certainly not helped by all this alcohol flowing around, but then again... (laughs) Suddenly, a shot rang out, and Doherty felt his knees grow weak. Don't let fear hold you back, he half whispered to himself, before realising with some horror that it wasn't fear which was pulling him down, but a bullet wound. Just above the heart, small chance of survival, potential to fire back, protect Sir Robert. All of these thoughts flowed into Doherty's head. He was aware that the hotel had erupted in a stampede of noise and animated screaming, and from where he was now lying, he was lying on the ground, but from where he was lying he could see Sir Robert pacing towards the poles, who all looked horrified at the scene, and were attempting to restrain their giant friend, who continued to shout expletives and wave his revolver. Doherty even thought he saw a smile play across Bronsky's face. Never got a chance to say goodbye to Bess was another thought which entered into Doherty's mind. No, he felt himself whispering, reaching into his jacket pocket for a pistol, before realising that it was already in his hand. Without thinking, without blinking, Joseph Doherty raised his Colt 1911 in the direction of Frederick Bronsky and fired four shots. One missed, hitting a presumably false Chinese vase, and shattering it into pieces. Another hit Bronsky in the arm. The other two bullets, which seemed to glide towards the target as though in slow motion, struck Bronsky in the leg and chest. The impact forced the hulking pole to sit down, and this time a smile really did play across his lips. A smile which didn't last, though, because it quickly turned into something approaching fear and horror. Doherty felt someone's arm in his shoulder and looked up. It wasn't Sir Robert, the Canadian Premier and his close friend, 
because Sir Robert had already run for a paramedic at this stage. Doherty looked into the eyes of Mihai Karoly, the Hungarian president. Mr. President, Doherty gasped, you're here. Stick it out, my old friend, the Hungarian urged in perfect English. I'm sorry, my friend, Doherty replied. I fear my time has come to an end. That was when Doherty began to hear some gurgling noises from where Carly had been kneeling, before realising that the Hungarian's arm was no longer on his shoulder. The Hungarian president had been hit, and now he was laying on his back beside Doherty. Doherty threw his gaze back towards Bronsky, who had propped himself up in his one good arm, and was still brandishing his revolver, which now had smoke trailing out of the barrel. Bronsky had just shot the president of Hungary, but Doherty knew that he had been aiming for him. There was blood all around him, soaking into the cheap carpet, which had once made him wince, but which now seemed so soft and comforting. Was he dying? He kept waiting for Bronsky's expression to change as he stared at him with the little bits of energy he had left, before he eventually realised that the pole was dead, that his facial expression and that his posture was now stuck fast. Was this what war looked like? Was this what he had striven to prevent? Was this why he had come here? Had he done a good job? Would Ireland at least be safe now and saved from bloodshed in the future? Would Sir Robert remember him to his wife? Doherty felt another hand on his shoulder and looked up to see a woman who was evidently distraught. Mr. Doherty, the woman sobbed, her hands covered in blood. My president is dead. So this was the famous Lady Nora Chalk, Doherty mused. A pretty sight indeed, but then she had eyes which had seen so much pain. Doherty attempted to comfort her while lying on his back with blood coming out of him, but then he began to choke as he felt blood moving to the back of his throat. He grasped Lady Nora's hand. Eliz... Eliz... Elizabeth, Doherty gasped. Tell Bess that I... I... I will, Joseph, Lady Nora said. I will. Joseph Doherty smiled and closed his eyes. We just want to ask you a few questions, the French policeman sighed, as an exhausted Hungarian countess sat crumpled in a heap in front of him. It had been a long day, perhaps the longest since the beginning of the war, and it seemed that the war had followed France back home. The policeman didn't know enough details about the war to gauge whether it was ironic that a Canadian, a Hungarian and a Pole had died fighting one another, but he was sure the joke would have been in very poor taste anyway. These delegates were evidently traumatised. Paderewski, who the policeman recognised, had been distraught over the loss of life, while another Pole, who identified himself as Mr. Lobova, insisted on staying with Bronsky's body until the coroner arrived. To be friends with such an animal, the policeman couldn't believe it. But then he had seen the war do terrible things to people, which he could not explain. His own brother had never been the same since returning from Verdun, and now even the emissaries of peace were apparently trying their own hand at war. It was now a matter of containment. No news of this incident could ever get out, for it would throw the entire peace conference into infamy, so the Hotel Twomley was shut down, the official word said, due to a burst pipe. They would need a great deal of water in any case to clean the blood out of the carpets. There was just so much of it. Twenty-three years as a policeman in Paris and he had never seen so much blood on the floor. All delegates had been moved three blocks down the street, to the much more upmarket Hotel Zachary. 
It was said that the food was divine, but the drinks were watered down, like a perfect tonic for the Hotel Twomley. Perhaps it was for the best, though such strong drinks did not flow for some time. All that he knew was that, after a day like today, he would need a stiff drink himself. Gentlemen, Theodore Roosevelt began, we must start somewhere. It is what our late friends would have wanted. We simply cannot allow their deaths to frustrate our great mission to make the world safe and better for everyone. Let us dedicate the Irish proposal to Justice Joseph Doherty's memory. We have elected to reimagine it as the Doherty Declaration, the sincere wish of a noble man who died in the service of peace for a country he had never visited, the ultimate sacrifice. I will now hand the floor over to Mr. Sean T. O'Kelly, representing that sacred emerald isle which Mr. Doherty has so touched. Theodore Roosevelt sat down, and about time too, Woodrow Wilson thought. He couldn't believe what had happened here. A Pole had shot a Hungarian and Canadian dead, and in a hotel? The cover-up stung him worst of all. Why not let the whole world see what kind of people the Polish were? The Bolsheviks could have them for all he cared. At least Lenin wasn't murdering people in hotels. Important as it was to keep up appearances, Wilson could feel some change in the air. He knew that Roosevelt had given the opening speech to stick it to him. Wilson was only surprised that his rival had made no mention of the League of Nations, which, as everyone knew since it was the worst kept secret in Paris, had failed to receive sufficient support and would have to be redesigned. So it was back to the drawing board with the League of Nations before all these ungrateful fools would support his life's work and contribute to make his vision a reality. Just how deep did their scorn go and what changes did they want? Wilson had heard talk of giving the Japanese more land in the Pacific and he took the occasion to glare at a balding, bespeckled man some distance to his right who waved at him. House, Wilson hissed. Who is that fool? Mr. President, that is Walter Cameron. Who? The President hissed again. Walter Cameron, the accountant who was supposed to fix us a solution for the reparations problem. Fantastic. Wilson realised that he had let that issue slip his mind. There was almost no point in talking of reparations when the world would not live long enough to receive them. The League was essential. Do we have Mr. Zahn? Wilson asked, as House responded by waving at the Chicago native seated down on the left. Joseph Zahn walked over. Mr. President, Zahn began, let me begin by saying... Mr. Zahn, House interrupted, we want you to talk to Mr. Roosevelt and find out what he wants. Ask him to draw up what he interprets as a better version of the League, ensure that he gets support for it, and if you believe it computes, then tell him we will accept it. Zan was taken aback, but before he could speak, it was Wilson's turn to interrupt. Mr. Zan, you must find some kind of compromise, and some way of presenting this concession as a victory for my party. Do you understand? It is imperative that Roosevelt not get any credit for this, and that I receive this credit instead for being pragmatic enough to listen to my rivals. Zan was evidently floored by this point, managing only to squeeze out a whispered sentence. But sir, what about the British... Should we not ask David Lloyd George? Mr. Prime Minister apparently wants nothing to do with creating a new world order, Wilson remarked. Now please, take this delicate matter to Mr. Roosevelt and bring his proposals back to me and me alone. Do not talk to the press. Those rumour mongers would have a field day. Absolutely, sir, Joseph Zahn replied, before stepping quietly back to his seat. It took him a few breaths to calm down. What was that? His colleague Bruce Pug asked. The president wants me to report to him, San replied, to find a better League of Nations. 
The best League of Nations, interjected William Randolph Hearst behind him, is one which does not exist. You should tell your president that. He's your president too, Mr. Hearst, Zan whispered angrily. Not for long, Hearst replied, his eyes turning to focus on an evidently chuffed Teddy Roosevelt. The hall where the delegates had gathered was the Hotel Zachary's greatest asset, and was capable of seating as many as 300 people. It was often used for shows, and it only reopened recently after being commissioned as an emergency hospital for the walking wounded. Standing before the assembled crowds was quite a challenge, but Sean T. O'Kelly believed it was only the right thing to do. Four days since that awful incident in the Hotel Twomley, it was essential that someone demonstrate they weren't afraid to honour Joseph Doherty's name. The Doherty Declaration, O'Kelly believed, would save Ireland from conflict, or at least ease the limited conflict which was already underway. He had messages of approval from all who mattered back in Dublin, on the basis of Lloyd George's approval for the scheme, which had been quietly given shortly after Doherty's death. It seemed that the late Canadian's death had not been in vain, and the story told itself thereafter. It was interesting, though, because the real story of what happened to Doherty was kept secret, and not even his wife would be told the truth. O'Kelly had seen it all happen in slow motion, just as the elevator he was on opened, and he seemed to walk into a war zone. Doherty had been cold by the time he got to him, and then the questioning began. The Poles had understandably been ostracised, and even some imagined that they had put Bronsky up to it. Doherty was known to be opposed to the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement after all, and a renowned international lawyer to boot. O'Kelly doubted that the scheme went so far. More likely it was the consequence of frayed nerves, deep anxiety, and strong alcohol all having its effect. Rumours would forever swirl around Doherty's demise, that it had been at the hands of a fellow delegate. But for now, the man's death was being put down to a random act of violence by a mugger. It was believed that this lie would be easier to accept, and just as easy to make use of. Sure enough, declarations of admiration for Doherty emerged from the most unlikely of places, with Paderewski himself making a personal plea for cooperation between the two blocks which seemed to be emerging. O'Kelly knew that his speech was good, because everyone from Sir Edward Carson, leader of the Unionists, to David Lloyd George, to Eamon de Valera, had told him so when he had submitted his draft to them. Recommendations and emotional pleas had poured in from Scottish, Welsh and English statesmen alike, and the Dominions had wasted no time either. Arthur McCallville, representing Newfoundland, and David McKay, representing Australia, had offered funds for the construction of a special memorial in Doherty's honour. Sir Robert Borden, evidently traumatised by the loss of his close friend, was said to be still unable to leave his bed. Poor fellow, O'Kelly thought. Nobody judged him for it. What a statesman Canada had lost, and what a father too. Doherty's three sons were said to be en route, and one would be unveiling the statue in his honour in Stevens Green in Dublin city centre. Distraught though they were, the Doherty family could rest assured that their Joseph had done the impossible in life and in death. He had brought peace to Ireland at long last. O'Kelly finished his speech to a rapturous and emotional applause, and he felt tears forming himself. It was high time to turn in for the night. The after-party for the Doherty Memorial was a strange affair, strange because of the absent elephants in the room, the Poles. Apparently they had been too ashamed to show their faces, and had taken up residence in a separate hotel to everyone else. 
It was just as well, the majority seemed to say. You couldn't trust those poles as far as you could throw them. Paderewski now attempted to work his magic in overtime, approaching with outstretched hands all manner of delegates he could find. Only the Italians would talk to him, at least for the moment. He also found that many of his potential allies were busy or indisposed, particularly the Germans, who had found solace in a new relationship with the Japanese. In return for the transferal of German New Guinea, the Japanese agreed to furnish the Germans with badly needed dollar currency, which they held in abundance. This would help revive the German economy and consequently enable her to pay reparations. It seemed like a perfect trade-off, and the British had commended themselves for a job well done, but the French were not pleased. Using American dollars provided by the Japanese did not represent sufficient punishment, and it was said that the French had an ally in the Australian delegate, David McKay, who desired German New Guinea for his country and had a joint stewardship under British and Japanese direction. Under the grief-stricken circumstances following Doherty's death, it would have been impolitic indeed for McKay to have worked openly against the British, and he didn't wish to deep down, but he did still want to get the best deal for Australia which was possible, and if that didn't mean New Guinea, then compensation of some sort would have to be sought instead. It was apparent that the deaths of three prominent delegates had opened up a vacuum which, surprisingly enough, the French chose to fill with their own delegates. Two relative newcomers, Albert Clavel, the French Minister for Public Works, for Finance and for Industry, and René Massigli, a rising star in the Quai d'Orsay, now had rooms in the Hotel Zachary. Supposedly, this was to better coordinate diplomacy between the different sides, but all involved couldn't help but feel as though the French had moved into the Hotel Zachary to keep an eye on things. Kaim Weizmann believed that he could feel the sorrow in the room. The great hall of Hotel Zachary took some time to clear out. It was evident that few people were in the mood for the after-party, and there was, in any case, opportunity for diplomacy and lobbying on a small scale here. Baron Nabuaki had sat with Prince Sharoon of Siam all evening, as the two were rumoured to be hammering out the last few details of their mutual friendship and defence treaty. Weizmann believed that neither man was of particular use to him, but Bonifacio Fidel, the star of the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, struck him as someone who might be of use. Evidently, this Sicilian had experience where crafting treaties was concerned. Might he now embrace his rumoured Jewish heritage and work out a treaty for realising the Balfour Declaration? Weissmann assumed this was why Fidel had pestered him so much over the previous week, at least before Ifta had come up and dominated his attentions. Fidel smiled at him from across the Great Hall, so at least that avenue was still open. What about the other delegates, though? Could they be of use to the Zionist mission? His eyes met with those of Charles Shear, the Alsatian delegate who was dealing with the defeat of his own. The poor man, outvoted and now outmatched by the French and their friends. Weizmann couldn't believe that Mr. Shear had even made it this far. An independent Alsace-Lorraine sounded to him like an impossible dream, and he had told Charles Shear so, to which the wily Alsatian had replied, More impossible than the establishment of a Jewish state, Mr. Weizmann? Scheer had a point, but his quest for Alsatian independence had at least galvanised much of the Western Allies together, though he couldn't be sure why this had happened. Was it true that, as the Poles and Italians feared, the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement was secretly being countered by a new accord? Weizmann had tried to find out more, but the Americans were keeping tight-lipped. Not even that blabmouth William Randolph Hearst would venture to share any gossip, which almost certainly meant that the matter was too serious to even joke about. 
just what was being planned, and in an atmosphere like this where so many good men had been lost. Weizmann spotted the shriveled heap of a Greek premier, seated far back at the hall. Venizelos was all about give and take. If he promised support for Greek claims on Asia Minor, then Venizelos promised to support plans for the creation of Israel. Weizmann didn't trust him, and he had been told not to trust him by the same man who was, interestingly enough, at that point, talking Venizelos's ear off, Vittorio Orlando. Orlando was a complex case ever since the creation of IFTA. He walked with a newfound confidence, but a confidence which came mixed with a kind of strange anxiety, as though he was worried it would, or already had, provoked something from the other side. Weizmann had been promised the moon if he promised, on his part, to vouch for Italy's claims on much of North Africa and portions of the Balkans. Speaking of which, he could spot the Serbian premier, Nikola Pesic, and the Slovenian delegate, Karhu Rosnak, seated in the back row. Neither man looked at the other, nor did either man rise out of his seat. It was like some kind of strange standoff. He could spot Rosnak a mile away, thanks to the cloud of cigarette smoke swirling above his head. And then he spotted Alexander Kerensky. Now there was a potential ally. Kerensky was Russian, after all, and by emphasising his own Belarusian heritage, Weizmann hoped he could get through to him. Then again, it was well known that Kerensky was a broken man, traumatised by the destroyed regime which he had existed to serve, and further horrified by the reimagining of Russia as some pariah state. Kerensky must have been desperate, or perhaps ill-informed, because from where he was sitting, Weizmann could see that he was engaged in conversation with that infamous blowhard, Janoris Dinglebrush. Weizmann had only met this spectacle of a man once before, and that had been enough. Legend had it that he threw an entire inkwell onto the British Prime Minister, and judging by his clumsy get-up and awkward nervous gesturing, Weizmann admitted that he wouldn't have been surprised if the legend was true. It would explain why he avoided Lloyd George like the plague. These two men were shortly after joined by Paul Mons, a man of great class and charm, and Weizmann believed he could see Kerensky relax from where he was sitting. Kerensky instantly began walking and talking with Imons, leaving Dinglebrush trailing behind him. It was a pitiful sight, but not pitiful enough for Weizmann to considering intervening and risk having another conversation with that big Belgian bag of hot air. The Austrian Chancellor then caught Weizmann's eye. Near the exit, he was chatting with an imposing man of Middle Eastern stock. This must be the famous Prince Sharif, who could reportedly bend swords with his bare hands. Perhaps the legends weren't true, Weizmann said. Weizmann had always thought that he would pay to see that, but if he had been a betting man, he would also not bet against the Arabian prince. With connections like his, and resources at his disposal, it was only a matter of time before the dream of Sharif's Arabia was realised. Weizmann wasn't sure what Sharif hoped to gain by talking with the Austrian Chancellor, though. This peace conference certainly made for strange bedfellows. Reportedly, Chancellor Karl Renner was somewhat out of place after pretending to join the Germans in their opposition to IFTA, only to declare his support for IFTA and bring all he had learned with him. Risking von Leto Vorbeck's fiery temper was not something that a sane man did, and Renner was now effectively reliant on the go-between of Horton von Hotzendorf, who worked hard to try and patch things up between the two ethnic Germans. Reportedly, as Weizmann had been told, von Hotzendorf was doing a good job, but there was only so much you could do when dealing with such a stiff and uncompromising man as von Leto Vorbeck.
Weitzman was drawing blanks before his eyes rested on an unlikely source of aid and an unlikely guest, Lord Balfour himself. Perhaps the author of the Balfour Declaration was the best man to appeal to directly, rather than beating around the bush. Weizmann had tried to approach Balfour in the past, but the British Foreign Secretary had always been busy. Now he was alone, standing awkwardly by the doorway, his eyes on Lloyd George. Evidently he was more than ready to leave. Kaim Weizmann, before he even realised what he was doing, began to walk towards Balfour, and in the process Weizmann hoped he was also taking the first steps towards Jewish statehood. A somewhat sudden end to this episode this week, dear delegates, but it has certainly been a heavy episode, and some massive implications for our game going forward have been experienced here. As I said in the beginning, before we go today, I have some announcements and housekeeping to get through. First of all, to lift the veil a little bit, those characters that died were played by folks who either wanted to swap to a different avatar or who wanted to stop playing the game, largely due to time constraints. Those two new French delegates are the ones that took the place of the late Doherty and Bronsky, while Carolee's player has elected to peace out altogether. In other words, no, I didn't kill those folks off on a whim, but Doherty's death in particular helps to further the story of the Irish proposal and make its acceptance more likely, which is handy for me as the storyteller. I do want to talk for a moment about time constraints and the sheer amount of time this game is taking up for people. I need to emphasise first of all that you're all brilliant for even making this an issue, since my great fear when starting this game and thinking it up was that nobody would care and nobody would participate, and it'd feel really empty and boring. The other side of this though is that it's just consuming too much time for everyone, and those that have really busy lives are beginning to feel overwhelmed by it all. I've also received some reports of people actually cheating, something which again I never imagined people would do by entering chats and then leaving them, taking a load of information with them to an opposing group. If you're wondering who I'm talking about, well, you probably know who you are already. Please, everyone, let's play fair, and let's make sure that we don't ruin the spirit of the game by trying to cheat the system or cheese our way into different groups where we don't belong. This game works well because you guys respect the fact that it is a game and that the fairer we play, the more fun it will be. When people start cheating and bending the rules, well, first of all, I'm kind of like, why would you cheat in a game like this? Because that takes the fun out of it. If I wanted to cheat, for example, it would be super easy for me. And if I wanted to bend the rules and manipulate things so that I could get the version of history I wanted, that wouldn't be very hard for me to do because I've got the power. But I won't do that because I want this game to develop organically. And you should too. Because the fairer we play and the more organically this game develops, the more fun we'll all have. I do love that the game is developed in this kind of dynamic way where you have the Poles and Italians pushing for IFTA and another group led by Western powers pushing for some mysterious Western defence accord. This is a really interesting development, it's something which I didn't expect to happen, and the Doherty death incident helps to add to this story by adding additional suspicion onto the Poles. But please, everyone, make sure you remain civil and play fairly. The last thing I want is for someone to get offended, even when playing fake people. Let's keep everything in perspective, and we'll all have a good time together. I've already received some reports about people trying to fudge the system, and if I receive too many of these, your delegate will suffer in the delegation game. Maybe you'll be put in jail, or pelted with rotten fruit, or completely embarrassed, or you get the idea. Do not fudge the system, and your character won't be fudged in this game.
So moving on to the votes which I'm going to put forward this week, they involve first and foremost a question on the mandates system and how you feel about them. Remember that in order for this to work, you'll probably have to listen to the two episodes I released on them to get a better grasp of what mandates mean. If you don't have time to do that, then a quick scan of the web will also probably fill you in sufficiently as well. The options for voting will include opposing mandates as a system, condemning Lloyd George for proposing them, supporting mandates as a system, permitting history and other options within that vote. The power of your weekly vote means that the devolved government for Ireland proposal has effectively saved Ireland from future conflict, so well done to all of you that voted for that. But as far as the League of Nations goes, you voted overwhelmingly to support the League with conditions, so for the next week, I'll be looking to get some sort of consensus as to what version of a League of Nations you all want. If you're thinking right now, how on earth are we going to do this? Well, first of all, it would probably be wise to develop another chat specifically for this purpose, or simply to debate it within the Delegation Game Delegates group. You will have from now until Friday to come up with a different version of the League of Nations, otherwise the default version will go ahead instead. When thinking of this alternative League of Nations, Maybe it would be helpful for you to try and pinpoint exactly what it was that you or your avatar doesn't like about the original version of the League and work from there. Once we have a kind of consensus, we'll present it in the next episode to Mr. Wilson, courtesy of Mr. Joseph Zahn, and see what he thinks. The second vote I'll be putting to you guys revolves not around a vote that actually takes place in the story, but about how much time this game takes up. So I'll be putting a completely out-of-character vote to you guys, in addition to the aforementioned mandates vote. The options for this time vote will include I like things the way they are now, so don't change it. Have every sixth week off. Have every fourth week off. Have every second week off. Only have active chats for Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Only have active chats for Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. And have every sixth, fourth or second week off, etc. There will be several options to choose from, and for the full listing of them, make sure you click on the link that is sent to you when it's time to vote. This is a really important vote, guys, because it will help me gauge exactly how much time everyone has and how overwhelmed we truly are. For the record, I can't see who votes what, so there's no judgement either way, depending on how you feel. I have received some questions regarding what would happen if certain characters became less active, because, yeah, it's taking up so much time. And the simple answer is, so long as you keep paying your $6 a month, your avatar will survive. He'll only die off if you want him to, or if you want to swap to someone else. So don't be worried if you feel like you're only able to occasionally intervene in the process for each episode. Another flag you should be aware of is that the deadline for voting has now moved to Thursday 5pm GMT, rather than Wednesday as it was before, because my production schedule for each new episode has been shaped and moulded, by the hectic nature of each week, between college work and making the actual podcast happen. For the moment then, I'd like to say that each episode will be released by noon GMT on a Saturday rather than Friday, but things do change and life can get in the way, so that the episode will sometimes be released on a Saturday evening, etc. But Saturday is the day for the new episode to come out, so you are all aware. Keep an eye out for announcements regarding its release, and you'll all be fine. Now I know this is a lot of housekeeping, but I feel it's only right to keep you guys informed about what's going on here, and to show you that I do listen to your concerns and questions. This game has been so much fun already, and I especially enjoyed making this episode. 
A huge shout-out to Frederick Bronsky, Joseph Doherty, and Mihai Carley, who agreed to die. And a huge welcome again to Mr. Walter Cameron, and hopefully this experience in the Hotel Twomley won't have scared him away. Someone better be renaming that Hotel Twomley lobby chat right about now, as we welcome you all to the Hotel Zachary. And I say a huge thanks for listening, dear delegates, and I hope to see you all again next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.